Oh, that's not a Dirty Dancing reference even. See, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> it's a Patrick Swayze reference. It is a Patrick like, Swayze you reference. You tried. A for effort there. <laughs> whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof, now we're lowering the floor. The band is blistered, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four. One, two, three, four. Welcome to The Whiskey Topic. My name is Mark Bylock, the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. Today's guest is Reed Mutenbuehler, the author of Bourbon Empire, The Past and the Future of America's Whiskey. Now, Jamie and I have been doing our research on your book. Um, I got to say, it's the first whiskey book where I've really learned a lot about history and whiskey together, especially American history. Uh, funny enough, like normally get the kind of the Coles Notes version of like, hey, whiskey came from Scotland and England and... There are whiskey makers that just made whiskey and they immigrated into into North America and done, period, colon, and we move on with life. Um, your book goes into a lot of detail on this. Yeah, it's funny because, and I, I always love those very short sections and all the other books. You know, I first became a whiskey geek and there weren't that many books out there. You had, you know, these guides and they're very literal, you know, like this is what it is, how it's made. And they immediately jump into technical stuff, which is very interesting. And I wanted to know that. But then they'd always have these kind of, you know, 10 page or, or a lot of times less, just real quick rundowns of history. And I, I saw that there's this sprawling story that it's kind of the story of America in miniature through this product. If you look at it as a commodity. Right? It's like the story of American capitalism, it's business, and it finds its ways in all these corners of American history. And then I was like, well, that book isn't really out there. There's other writers who had alluded to that kind of history, but it always tied back to very much like the product, you know, from a technical nature. So that was kind of my, my goal. And I also realized after a point, you know, you geek out on this stuff, but like all of those points of economics and politics and culture have very much influenced this thing that we hold in our hand in a glass today, like the lobbying. Um, you can taste the lobbying, you know, literally, like how these producers got regulations changed to age it longer, that kind of thing, the taxes. Um, you know, I talk about these somewhat unromantic figures in the book, like Sam Bronfman and Louis Rosensteel, these guys who had connections to organized crime, but they ran, you know, three quarters of the liquor trade in the middle of the 20th century. And you're like, they put companies out of business, and that led to certain production standards and styles going extinct. They also lobbied for changes that in some ways were very positive for the spirit. So it was this give and take and push and pull. Um, and I was like, and that's very much a part of the story too. You know, the aging process is the story of economics. It's also the story of status, you know, like, you know, a little bit of age, it's a more exclusive product. And I was like, in those stories, if you could find a way to tell that in a narrative form, you know, you can kind of get to those lessons of connoisseurship that other people had stated more uh, matter-of-factly, you know, more like, hey, look, age isn't always better. You know, older isn't always better. And I was like, well, let's look at some of those marketing campaigns when some producers who had these huge surplus stocks of really old stuff that some of the companies told me, they're like, some of it should have been destroyed. It actually should have been turned into industrial alcohol. But there was a brief period, you know, in the 60s when the market had cratered and the Japanese started, you know, really getting into whiskey. A couple of companies were like, we sold stuff that was garbage for this really high price just because it was old. And this market was taking its cues from the scotch world where you do tend to find these older ages and it works as an older product. And so just looking at these kind of flying by the seat of their pants marketing campaigns that companies like Shenley worked on and they're like oh and because it's older we can also market it as more premium exclusive is more expensive and oftentimes it wasn't necessarily a better product and i was like that to me is how the story became so much more fascinating older isn't better but when you see a guy who's just trying to survive and he's overproduced accidentally and he's like i just got to sell it before it evaporates and so you see the, the 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 machine work kind of you know behind a lot of what has evolved into modern rules of connoisseurship. And so it debunks it a little bit. And I was like, well, that's a great way. Hopefully I can try to tell the story that way. And that was, that was kind of my goal. I think it's, I think it's like really interesting because you, you sort of pulled apart that the, the history and, and opened it up a little bit and you don't get that very often, especially when you go to distilleries, you you get that sort of romantic sort of piecemeal idea. Um, and, uh, but I still think the, the way it was written, like you, 
it was sort of very non-judgmental and like this is just what it is and it's not bad and it's not there was it, it wasn't sort of that heavy-handed approach sometimes you get on when you go on twitter and you see people like well they did this and they sold this for this much money and they're crooks and they're the, and so but you wrote in this sort of like this is just what it is and i'm making no no, no judgments on it and i'm not you know being heavy-handed about it it is you know in this sort of positive light which i really appreciated too because you know it's not always as beautiful and romantic but it, it was still positive nonetheless. Uh, it's, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Because um, <laughs> that was kind of the goal, you know, it was without malice or scorn. Because our parts where I'm, I'm critical, right? Mm -hmm, of course. And yeah, and like you were saying, sometimes you go on social media and it's like in all caps, right? It's all lies. Right. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, <laughs> you know. And that was the other part of the story that I was attracted to is on one hand, you have this beautiful industry and it's very charming. And it's this inspiring story of... Uh, you know, craft and of um, adaptation and of innovation. But then you flip the card over, and it becomes a it's it's a very real story. And that it was historically one of the most corrupt industries in American history. You know, some of these guys were flat out criminals, um, and that was a big part of it. And it all gets wrapped up like any great American story, right? It's you know, behind every great fortune lies a crime. You know, you've heard all these kinds of things. And I was like, that is part of it. That is the reality of it. So. Yeah, I love the fact that, you know, you get these big corporations, which are never romanticized, but they do make a good product. And, and I think whiskey occupies its own sphere of the food world that way that kind of goes against the rules that we think, especially their modern foodie politics. Um, and so I was like, well, if you're going to call a fair game, you know, you've got you've to address that. And so, yeah, that was a goal. That was a goal of the book was to kind of just... And that's something other people have responded to. And I get letters from folks who have read it and they're like, you know, yeah, you, you were fair, you know, and even though you, I, I get a little, I rag a little bit at the end on, on craft. And I was like, I love this craft movement so much and it has so much potential, but I feel like we need to call it what it is right now, which is potential. You know, they can bring back so much great stuff and these products could be so good. But right now, you know, they're up against a formidable, you know, adversary with these bigger distillers who are doing a good job, and they are being pushed into some shortcuts. You know, like I'm not very kind to small barrels. I, I think it, it's it is inferior to it is making an inferior product. There are exceptions to that rule, of course, but I'm like this is more along the lines of helping a friend, you know, like really get better. It's we were I was talking about with another like a friend the other day, and I was like, you know, John Coltrane didn't get good by practicing his strengths, he got good by practicing his weaknesses. You know what I mean? So it was like, let's just be honest about whiskey, what makes great whiskey, and if we're critical, it's always out of love. I love that your book starts off as uh, a story of the American Revolution and how whiskey took a big part of that history, uh, and then how immigrants from Ireland and Scotland, and I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they were called retnecks, uh, and that term really comes from Scotland, um, how these backwoods, uh, people were really recent immigrants and they knew how to make whiskey and they knew how to kill people and they really helped tilt the war uh, in favor of America. I thought that was fascinating. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I read a Scots border term for a Presbyterian and cracker. You know, the term cracker comes from the word you know, crake, which was to talk in a braggartly way in that kind of way that spurs a fight. You know what I mean? Like these are a cantankerous, ordinary bunch of people. And you're looking at whiskey and you're like, you know, it has that reputation of being this frontier thing and of being a rough drink and of people fighting in saloons and cow, you know, it has that, it has way more of a reputation as being aggressive, right? Like wine's not aggressive, beer is, you know, not aggressive in the way that whiskey is. And I was thinking about that and there's that Steinbeck quote, the John Steinbeck quote I use in the book about, you know, the, pla the names in places reflect you know, the people that have inhabited those places. And so you get these really profane names in Virginia and then in West Virginia, you know, and then in the area of Virginia that became Kentucky ultimately. Um, you know, like Killing Branch Creek, you know, things like that. And I was like, and this is the, these are the places where this spirit really, you know, this is romantic attachment. It's anchored to these places. And I thought that was like a beautiful thing to, to point out. Whereas Scotch, it had also come from an, an area of the world that was at one point considered an isolated backwater. And, you know, it's like there's really no reason scotch should be considered a much more refined or sophisticated product than bourbon or any of these American whiskeys. I mean, when you look, it's, just, it's all just grains and they're, you know, aged in a barrel. And, 
But Scotch, at one point in its history, had that transformation. I thought that was a wonderful story in the book about, you know, the phylloxera aphid kills the vine crops that the upper class had relied on for their tipples of choice, you know, brandies and wines and things like that. And so they need a new drink. And Scotch is right there. And right at the time that they're starting to look at Scotch whiskey as a substitute, you've got Queen Victoria, and she's bought Balmoral Castle, and Scotland's getting this upgrade in, in, in the popular mind, the poetry of Robert Burns, is getting in a facelift, so to speak. And Scotch becomes this drink of the English gentleman, you know, Scotch and soda. And you also have these big industrialists in the UK, like, you know, doers and these guys, and, you know, they've built these brands, blending becomes a, a thing. And I kind of looked at Kentucky and, you know, I mean, whiskey in America was so much more widespread than just Kentucky. I mean, it was all over the country, but this is sort of a, it's got this philosophical uh, attachment, you know, to this one area of, of, our, of our country. And um, Kentucky, the Ohio River Valley, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, these places where all this whiskey came from, even Missouri, never got that kind of facelift. It's never been a fancy place. It's always been an out-of-the-way place. It's always been, uh, you know, a little more blue-collar and working class. And I was like, and that that has always been an obstacle for this industry in a way because it's been seen as a little bit simple. And you would see these companies in the 50s and 60s trying to get beyond that. Like, okay, how this is a subplot in the history of American whiskey, right? How do we make it seem more fancy? It's an inherently humble, simple product. It's just some grains, right? Fermented, aged in a barrel, bottled. How do we make it seem more fancy so we can charge more for it? And where you really see this expressed in the, in the most funny way, I think, is overseas, you had, you know, Jim Beam was a perfect example. Stateside, it's kind of, eh, you know, it's Jim Beam. It's kind of, it is what it is. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty humble. And then overseas, their ad campaigns, they have guys in top hats and coattails and tuxedos. <laughs> and I think I saw one picture, he's like, <laughs> a guy's holding on a platter, a bottle of Jim Beam, like white label, you know? And it was like, because we taste with our minds as much as our, you know, I, it's not, this might sound cynical, but I sometimes think you could take just about anything, and if you get the story right around it, and it looks authentic, and the bottle looks good, you know, we like, you know, we like to champion our, our taste buds and our, 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 our sophisticated palates, but sometimes the image, you know, it's so important, and I love that kind of a story. It's all in our heads, you know, so that was mm -hmm. a recurring theme in the book. It's all in our minds. Like that, I think you get some valuable lessons on connoisseurship from that too, where you also realize, well, it's not better because it's older, you know, it might just be a wood bomb. It's kind of bitter and gross. Mm -hmm. um, and once you can break yourself of those established rules, then you, you find yourself in this territory of a, a whole new world opens up to you where you start enjoying the humble brands or the, the big brands or the brands that aren't as sexy and cool. You can sometimes start enjoying them a whole lot more, I think. For sure, a hundred percent. Which is why we love blind tastings. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That is, yeah. <laughs> I I don't know why they're not more. Pop Some people are terrified of them for obvious reasons. They're yeah. yeah. They they can be totally terrifying. But I think if you could remain sort of humble about it and not get too cocky and be not afraid to say I I don't know. I just don't know. Like I I'm not sure what I think about this. Like uh, I like it. But I don't know why I like it. If you're okay like that, then you you know it's you can learn so much more about your taste than you know if you're staring at a bottle of. Pappy Van Winkle, and you're like, oh, I'm I'm definitely gonna like this. Well, that yeah, and that comes up in the book. Bill Samuels, yeah, does, who, yep. who you know, was Junior, the CEO, former CEO of Maker's Mark, who knew Pappy, um, you know, kind of grew up around Pappy, and you know, he was like, oh, he kind of dismissed that that brand. He's like, ah, you know, you get your mind all wrapped up into it. I gotta like it. I, my dad at one point actually had a case, I think, of, of Pappy. This was a few years ago, and you can still get it very easily. And I, you know, it's a good product. I, I always, I remember always, it was always available in liquor stores, you know, in the earlier days of my own geekdom. I remember passing it up a lot of times. I wasn't that enamored of it, you know, before it became what it is today. I told my dad, I was like, you know what? Would you have anyone bring up Pappy? Do me a favor. Just give them a mini bottle, pour some off for them, give them a sample. And I just want to know how they reacted. He was like, you know, about half of the folks taste it and they're like, oh, this is what the big deal is about? Uh, and the other half is like their eyes roll back in their head and it's just like they've 
drank you know unicorn blood or something it's like crazy <laughs> crazy like oh my god it's you know did god distill this and you're like no it's just you know and i was like it's it's all in our minds it's all in our heads it's all in our heads well it's it's sort of like talking about i was um thinking about when i pulled the bourbon that i'm actually drinking off my shelf i sort of thought of that part of the book and i'm actually drinking hudson <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Which... I'm not friendly to them in the book. <laughs> I know. I did that on purpose. <laughs> what's funny is, I really respect it as a company, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're new and they're they're working. But I I talk to so many people in you know in the book, and they come up a lot. You know, when you're talking about craft and the early craft, and folks are like. They got the image thing. They were early, so they were novel, right? And so a lot of their success was based on novelty, I think, and newness. I had one craft producer tell me, yeah, if I could do it over, I would simply set up camp outside of New York City with all those foodie writers, you know, who That's are right. going to give me all this free press. And, it, you know, kind of cynical, but... And, you know, not getting a lot of respect, you know, from the geek crowd or whatever, but they've got this beautiful bottle and the image. Mm-hmm. Everything is Everything is right. And I'm critical of their production standards. And but that was another great lesson in the book is, you know, they took a little bit of heat for partnering with William Grant, like, oh, selling out to big company. And I'm like, you know, this is a big company that's very experienced. They have a lot of knowledge about the process. They have a lot of capital. And these are very important things to this industry. Like we have to recognize what makes it an exceptional product. And it our quality, such as aging a little longer in a slightly bigger barrel that these companies can't always afford. And there is no bad that is going to come from this partnership, in my view, if this big, experienced company with a long legacy, you know, helps them. So I really wanted to hit that message in the book, too. Like, mm-hmm. you can give them a rough tri- time for that. And and I'm only being critical out of that kind of love. It's like, I don't think it's, you know, I haven't been super impressed by the product, but that doesn't mean it hasn't improved a lot. I think it actually has. A, a lot of these craft brands have. I think one of the best examples is is, uh, is Few. Like, their heart's in the right place. And when I first had that rye, I was, I was not happy with what was in my mouth. <laughs> and, you know, it was just a wood bomb, the small bear. And I was just like, this isn't balanced. It's just all those things I really want. And... and you know, and you might get critical with some producers, like, well, taste is subjective. Like, you're absolutely right. It's totally true. But in this case, I feel like you're using that argument to deflect what is very honest and legitimate criticism. It's like telling a cook, you know, hey, you need a little more salt. You know, it's not like I'm trying to be a jerk, but let's let's make it awesome. Like, let's make it, you know, let's, I really want to see you guys thrive because you're doing a really good product. And I, yeah, about nine months ago, I tried the few... Uh, cask strength bourbon and I mean leaps and bounds right so they're growing and there's still ways to go with I think a lot of these there, there is a long way to go with a lot of craft producers but that that was another part of the book looking at it as a business and you know not as a glossy you know advertising campaign and you know, small is always best you know you, these photos of these guys you know leaning over rakes and we you know we we take that nostalgic agrarian past and we really kind of romanticize it a little bit I was like, let's let's put those images off to the side and look at it technically, you know, as a product, and, and it's an industrial as well as agricultural. Like that is something I, I'd like to see people acknowledge a little more. You know, you get advantages from size and from, you know. So that was that was this, the the thinking. I haven't talked to any of the folks at Tuttletown about what I wrote. Um, <laughs> you know, I haven't heard any feedback. But you know, honestly, it's like I really support the company, and I, I you know what they're trying to do. It's super cool. Who's going to deny yeah. that? I, and I'm just doing it, it more. It's great on your bar too. Like it's a nice, like yeah. it is, you know, yeah. I wish people talked about whiskey sometimes the way they talk about sports or art. Like in that realm, you know, it's okay to criticize a little bit. You're being, you know, with, and with sports, you know, because it's a physical thing. It's like this team won and this is why this other team lost. And it's because this player is not doing this well today. You know, they need to... You know, even out the swing, you know, things like that, where it's like we talk about it from a very, you know, that kind of, I kind of have this ideal that instead of these articles that sometimes write about whiskey, you know, you know, the peripherals, like, oh, it's an independent company, they're independent smallholders, you know, they've quit their corporate day jobs, all these things that don't actually matter, 
you know, relating to what is in the liquid, you know, the glass, the liquid in the glass. That's like a little sub dream of mine, you know, just to see people <laughs> talking about it. Yeah, it's maybe we're draining the blood out of the pig a little bit, and it's a little bit, you know, that romance is also a very fun part of all this. But that's what makes it fun too to debate about this stuff. Oh, you know, spirited yeah. debates, never drawing blood, just kind of uh, being honest. Well, we love analogies on this show. That, that's a that's a good one. That yeah. that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be one of my favorites right there. Because the sports analogy does work well. Because you'll have the Yankees fan that is like the Yankees are the best team every Yankees year. They're not gonna win. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. It's it's. And I live in New York, the... and I'm decidedly not a Yankees fan. And oh, oh. <laughs> I, I'm a Nationals well, fan. I lived in yeah, and yeah, no, it's like that thing. It's like oh, this guy, the Yankees. Guy. Yeah, oh. you see him in his habitat, no, but it's true. right? And he's got that baseball cap on and it's that's right yeah anyway <laughs> yeah but but you do have but you do you will have people that are like not just living in new york city but everywhere they're just big yankees fan but then there are the fans that are just like oh i like the yankees but they don't have the best team this year i'm gonna you know i may not cheer for another team but i'll, I'll watch this other team play because i think they've got the better this that the other thing um and so you get kind of between like the fans of the brand and then the people that just love baseball or love right. football or love whiskey uh, in, in our case, yeah, you're, it's, that's a great point. We generally don't talk about whiskey in a very sort of like, hey, they're not great right now, but man, they're, they've just got, you know, they've got a great triple eight uh, team that, that those young guys will come into the, uh, into the majors and they'll, they'll have a good future. We don't really say that a lot. Uh, a lot. What do you think of that uh, Hudson's uh, that you're drinking, baby? Uh, baby. That's like dirty <laughs> oh, sorry, dancing. What's it called? <laughs> oh my God. Hudson's baby. Oh, that that's baby in a corner. <laughs> I, I hope I think that might be our first Dirty Dancing reference, and I'm gonna remember this forever. It's my favorite movie. It should become uh, a thing now. Like every episode like, gets a Dirty Dancing. You have to watch yes. Dirty Dancing and write down all the good yes. lines and try to find a way to work them in. I already know them, Reed. I already know them all. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I used to. It's funny when I I I I sort of I also am not overwhelmed with happy feelings about this i think um you know it's sweet it's that corn you know it is a a hundred percent corn and it tastes like a hundred percent corn um the mouthfeel isn't quite what i like it to be um is it's it a, little a little grippy are you getting a little bit of that grippy yes yeah yes yes i haven't had that in a while but i've had it and that was another yeah that was a complaint i had some people might like that and that's totally because you're like yeah. a really tannic wine i don't like some of these french that's okay that's yeah. fair, but I, I'm also looking for that balance. People don't talk about that a That's lot. Right. It's like, yeah. So. That's exactly what it is. It's missing that balance. It's got lots of like sort of that, that tannin, oaky sort of thing going on. So uh, it's like two flavors I'm getting. I'm getting a lot of corn, and then I'm getting that sort of like tannic, oaky sort of thing. Um, but, you know, in, in a – and it's funny. I, I did have like a moment with this uh, baby bourbon a little while ago, um, and I sort of really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, we've talked before about context and, and how important context can be and, you know, how one day you could just sort of fall in love with something and the next day be like, what was I thinking yesterday? That's kind of a weird one. But, um, you know, I, uh, I've got about half a bottle left, and I'm really happy to, like, go back to it every once in a while and see how I feel about it. But, yeah. I mean, you know, it looks awesome on the bar. It's very cool. Um, we can get it here in Canada relatively easy. And I know that they've expanded um, their mash bills and they've done a couple different things. So I would be really curious to try some of their other stuff. I haven't tried anything yet. But, you know, this one's it's it. I, I wouldn't mind like putting that in a Manhattan or something, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting you said there was. We're just speaking of the experience and the where you have it. And that's also important, which is why I really try hard not to fetishize any products or use terms yeah. like the best or, yeah. you know, it's all, it's all, you know, when it's really hot out, I want to dump a ton of ice into whatever I'm drinking. Yes. You know, and that's all like totally cool. There's no rules. And I, last year, two years ago, I was on the Jersey Shore with a friend and he walked into the liquor store and there was a new craft whiskey and he's like oh let's just try it it's like $50 a bottle you know it's like it was very craft whiskey it's like 50 bucks a bottle and it was the um, from the journeyman to start out of Michigan and he was like oh Michigan I, okay I haven't tried this and so we try it and I remember being okay this you know it's got a very craft whiskey thing going for itself it, it's clearly young it's, I know it's you know it seems like a small barrel because there's a lot of wood in it still and I remember being like 
so this is a company that needs to maybe refine some things a little bit because it had a great nose. Just I loved it. It was like kind of this fresh leather thing going. I mean, a lot of lot of vanilla, like a, like a vanilla grenade was in the cup, and it just exploded in my face. And I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember tasting it, and I remember the first couple of sips. Like this is oh, you know, this is you know maybe you know this they've threaded a needle here with some things. Like this is kind of nice. And it was a big heavy pour. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time I got to the bottom of the glass, I remember like those two notes that I really liked at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Those are the only two notes that had, a, you know, it's like a song that's <laughs> only two notes. I was like, well, you know, it's like, where's the rest of it? And I remember thinking, this is almost, this is getting there. You know, and that's the thing. We're refining this process. It's a new brand. They're at the beginning of their learning curve. And, you know, and that was actually just as much fun as drinking something at Stellar's, picking it apart, talking about, the, I had this conversation last night, you know, this which is great to tasting with a bunch of whiskey people in the business and you know, writers and a lot of dusties. And we were talking about how you, when you drink a bad whiskey, like a really bad one. And we had a dusty scotch from the seventies. And one of the, is a, I think this guy worked for Glenn Morangy actually. He looks at me and he looks at the bottle and he goes, there's a reason a lot of these distilleries went out of business. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was, Oh my God, it was like sulfur sticks and woo. Oh, yeah, and we were like, and I mean, we were all trying to come up with really appropriate terms. And I remember being like, this is when you take the cap off of a plastic milk carton and you get that dried milk on the inside. It's kind of a ecru yellow color. This is what the, that smells of this tastes like. We're all kind of making fun of it. And I was like, but I've learned as much from tasting something that didn't come together quite right as you sometimes do from the stuff that's very elegant and refined, you know? I find. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Mark, what are you drinking? I forgot. Sorry, we forgot. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) talk about refined and balanced. I went back to scotch. uh, No. Um, I'm drinking Uh, a Glamorangi 18, extremely rare. You know, you know, it's so, you know, you know, a scotch, if it's rare or it says very rare, it's relatively rare. But when it says extremely rare, you know, it's super rare. Uh, Absolutely (laughs) no legal connotations there whatsoever. Um, But no, I. I never really planned out what I drink for the show. I just kind of look at, look at my cabinet and see what I feel like. And I guess I felt like a older single malt scotch. So there you go. Well, uh, beautifully balanced, like nice, nice, nice drink. Um, a great nose, kind of what you expect in a single malt scotch, kind of very much in that sphere of, yes, this is a single malt scotch. Yeah, I tried some Glenmorangie 25 last night. And, you know, I never fetishize products. And I don't like to gush too much, you know, because I feel like, that does a bad thing to the whiskey market, right? Steve Urey, you know, has blogs. He had a great little post yesterday or the day before about don't stop fetishizing whiskey. We're not doing anyone a favor when we drive these prices up. But I tried this Glenmorangie 25 last night, and I, I will actually say it was like a symphony. It was like a chorus wow. of vein. I mean, it was like, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is awesome. But, you know, so, you know, occasionally that happens. Oh, but like you were saying, that those words premium, I love stumbling yeah. on that in the book. When you look at this history of the subplot of American whiskey history, or all whiskey history, but trying to take an inherently simple, humble product and dress it up to so you can charge more for it, you see that happening in the U.S. at least. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, you've got all this extra income, post-war um, affluence, and that was a big issue. Like Shenley, you know, which was biggest spirits company in, in, in the world like a lot of it has been you know it was absorbed into the machinery of today's large you know corporations a lot of it is not part of Diageo um, but mm-hmm. Sidney Frank who is Louis Rosenstiel's son-in-law he actually is a guy who ended up creating Grey Goose he became a billionaire literally a billionaire um, there's still a company named Sidney Frank they, they do importing um, very successful he was tasked at one point you know when he worked Chenley in the 50s, how do we upmarket? How do we, you know, and in the business press of the time, because back then you didn't have lifestyle press like you do today, where you've got these kind of glossy food magazines and it's much more, uh, I think they strive much more to just sort of educate people and let them know about products. There's certainly you know, this advertising influence under all that. The business press covered whiskey much more closely back then. I think because so much government revenue is tied to it as an industry. And so you'd get these very toothy you know, reporters from barons and business magazines. And they were very critical like of the industry trying to dress it up. They were like, you know, there was one article in the New York Times about glass makers and how you know, they 
glassmakers were getting all these orders from the whiskey companies who were just taking the same old liquid and putting it in very fancy bottles and you know premiumization and they were like the whiskey hasn't changed it's just the marketing around it and when i looked at today's sales data um, the discus sales data you you know you see the the three main categories this stuff is broken out at you know with like super premium premium super premium i forget exactly how they're all designated but the big growth has come from that higher end. Like the volumes aren't really that much bigger. People really aren't drinking that much more. When you look, when you look at the profits, it's not attached to volume. The, the, the profits that you've seen with this big whiskey boom of recent years, but it's they're you know drinking better. You know they're drinking the higher end stuff or what they think is better. And I think you see that with a lot of these new brands where they're like, well, that's what's selling. That's what people want. They want the new new thing. And so we're just going to try to place our product into that category and a lot of times it's just done with pricing we'll just give it a more expensive price and a new label um my aunt actually did vodka marketing in new york in the 1980s and it was fascinating to talk to her about that experience she was like they had a client uh 80s it was from one of these scandinavian countries they're trying to copy absolute uh, you know let's break in because it's the northern european there's a mystique around that's hot in, in america right now and she goes we, they had a year's worth of budget. My aunt worked for Pepsi, and they had lured her away to work on this other campaign. And she said, not once in a year did we have a conversation about the product, about the liquid in the bottle. It was all about target demographics, what they will pay, how much money they have, how do you reach them, and how do you make them think that this is something that is a symbol I can hold in my hand that expresses me. Because that's the entire conversation. So I thought it was interesting to look, you know, you've seen a little bit more of that, you know, and whiskey, everyone wants to be seen as sophisticated. The foodie thing is really driving this and people want to be seen as sophisticated and, you know, I know what I'm drinking and I have like a very refined palate and I'm not going to buy the quote unquote rot gut or, you know, the bottom shelf stuff, I, you know. And so you see a lot of new brands that I don't think quite live up to where they're being placed on the store shelves because of that. Um, and my favorite example is, you know, Knob Creek actually. I love, I actually love, I love the product. And you have to put in context when that was created, early 90s, 92. Here you have a company. The market has slumped. Nobody's buying this stuff. Nobody's paying money for it. And here you have a liquor company with vast stocks of all this aging stuff that they can't sell for the life of them. So what do they do? They're like, well, you know, we've got a starting to get a budding connoisseur crowd, why don't we just engineer something that is awesome, right? Nine years, like a lot of these guys are like, you know, six to 12 years at nine, nine years is kind of sweet spot for a lot of American whiskeys. And they engineer this thing, Knob Creek, really just to like nail it down, you know? Like that, that would, you know, we'll sell to these, this small group of people that really, really likes it. It's, but now, you know, it's a big brand. It's pretty ubiquitous. It's not that expensive um, today. And I think you see a lot of people who now want the new, new thing, right? And they kind of look past it. They kind of forget that that was created, and that taste profile was struck upon when the industry was really not doing too well. And they had to struggle to really put something of great quality in front of people if they even wanted to sell it at all. And it's like people forget those lessons. And, you know, they, they've really hit a home run with that. And you kind of see it today. You know, it doesn't get the love from the geeks as much as I sometimes think it, it, it you know, should. And I thought that was that was a fascinating lesson. I didn't really get to that in the book, but you know, things like that I think are just really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that Jim Beam um, has you know Knob Creek. They've got Booker's. They've got these really um, really excellent products for whiskey drinkers. They're not they're not you know they're not for like the uh, the consumer that's starting out, but they're definitely like whiskey drinkers uh, whiskey. Um, but they don't do the same thing that Buffalo Trace does. They don't do the the super premium Buffalo Trace level of like here's your stag, junior, here's your stag, here's your Eagle eighteen. Yeah. Um, they they're very much focused um, on. I mean, I guess that's where a lot more money is at. But they do a really excellent job in that level, and and I agree, not as uh, not as well recognized necessarily. Yeah, and bless them for that. You know, some of the, of the big companies there are some that really get the geeks excited more than others do. And I had one marketer. Tell me once we were talking about Beam, and I was like, you know, I I have a penchant for Beam products more than the average, you know, geek geek. My I, I kind of like their flavor profile some more than others. And one marketer, yeah, you know, told me he goes, you know, the best thing they can do is what they did with the small batch collection, and it's take the words Jim Beam off the label, just because mm -hmm. it's an optic. It's what people see white label. They see Kid Rock, you know, promoting it, and it's in Chevy commercials, whatever. Uh, you know, like that optic isn't what is really driving, I think, the boom in 
spirits today. And I, I'm very, I actually defend, you know, the white label stuff in, in the book, you know, for, for, you know, for a lot of reasons. I, I love treating whiskey as kind of a, a humble thing. And there's that ideal of an affordable workhorse brand that's consistent. I think consistency is important. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, I'd actually love to see the craft movement do more blending, you know, kind of the way that the Scotch world and the Canadian world does blending, like recognize that it's an art and that it can be used for consistency. And you get these wonderful, probably you know, last night in this tasting with, with these folks, we had some white label from the World War II era, some Cuddy Sark from the early 70s. It was phenomenal. You know, the white label, it was like a, it was like a, a photograph, you know, that has sat in the sun. You know, today, it's like a photograph that sat in the sun for like 10 years, right? It's just all, you know, the faded version of what it once was. You got all this smokiness and all this great stuff. And, you know, the blending that went into that back then, I think they were using, you know, far more of the malt. It's, you know, it's a really a great art. And there's a lot of possibility there. I'd love to see some craft producers maybe blend, you know, among different producers, styles, that would be so cool to start seeing, to get that consistency. I think you could, you know, balancing out different parts. Yeah, and that's one of those things where uh, we, we've talked about on the show before where uh, the, the stricter rules around what straight bourbon is, how straight bourbon is defined, um, doesn't, it creates this battle between what would make a better tasting whiskey versus what, you know, how you could market it. If you can no longer put straight bourbon on that or straight rye on the bottle, because uh, it does have to come from one distillery um, and be, you know, uh, uh, thing, it, it, it does create a lot of these complexities where you're like, well, we'd like to do this, but now we can't use this brand association. So, you know, that, that lack of free, the lack of freedom is partially there because of marketing uh, and, and how the products can be marketed afterwards. Yeah, I, I moved here from Washington and at one point down in D.C., I met up a bunch of craft distillers mainly. They were on the hill and they were talking about some of this stuff and kind of exploring, um, you know, getting some of the regulations changed a little bit you know so that the labeling thing is but it's weird because when you look at the history of the spirit that labeling and those labeling rules came into place because there was so much corruption in the industry right i mean you had people just dumping poisons literally poisons into this stuff and people had no idea and it was this a, a big issue right you know you've got the pure food and drug act and the bottling and bond act of 1897 and it's it's you know so these were all put in place partly because there was this giant industry that was consolidating and you know people forget that this industry was gone after by the justice department a lot for monopolization and they kind of pushed the rules into their corner you know into this thing that they did very well and they dominate it and you know it'd be nice to see some some things relaxed or some changes but you also want to be careful with that too because a lot of those rules went into place for very good reasons, you know, because people didn't really know what they were buying and it was inconsistent. You had trademark infringement, you know, so it's, it's, it's tricky. And I think people are very hesitant to start playing with it. We're in a different time today, you know, but you always worry that certain things could, could slide back too. you know, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day about rectifying and rectifiers were always looked at as being you know, really bad and making horrible product. And you're like, but you know, like Brown Foreman started as a rectifier, like the first 30 years of its existence, making Old Forester was buying from other companies and then blending to get the, you know, what they wanted. And um, the blending is in, you know, like, like mingling different stuff. Not not blending, you know, it's, you gotta be careful with that term, you know, depending on what kind of whiskey you're talking about. Um, and I was like, but, you know, you're almost seeing it again today you know, in a way where you've got people doing all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. And, and the craft movement, in a way, they're almost like modern-day rectifiers, you know, with the finishes and, you know, so I don't know. There are these interesting historical parallels that way. That, Do you that think I, that we're sort of like, like, are we closer to sort of relaxing things or with, you know, talking about like single barrel and small batch and are we closer almost to um, regulating those terms? Like, are do you, how do you think the pendulum might sway at this point? Because people do get really up in arms about small batch and what does that actually mean? And yeah, know, it means all... means nothing. Yeah, <laughs> as an unregulated term, it's it's a buzzword and it's got. So that's that's a great question. I um, yeah, I don't think there will really be these wholesale changes because the 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 lobby 
um, you know, 95% of the stuff is still made by just a few corporations. And I don't know to what extent it's really in their interest to have these these rules, rules changed. And the lobbying mechanism in Washington, I mean, that's who butters its bread, right? So I don't know if we're going to see a lot of changes that way. But as far as the craft kind of labeling, you know, wading into that and, you know, putting definitions to these terms, it's difficult because a lot of people want to peg it to size. And whiskey geeks all know that that means nothing. Um, what I have actually kind of been pushing for, and I, I have a little bit of a, I try to champion it in the book, is just transparency. I think a transparency rating could be awesome. Where instead of, you know, you've got a story about some old gangster or your great-great-great-grandfather's recipe and it's a totally fake story and it doesn't exist, having a rating next to a brand where, and I don't care if you're an NDP, a non-distiller producer or a grain to glass or a big company or whatever, the more information you're willing to give to a customer, that's what you're judged on. So if you're talking about fermentation time and you know, you're talking about um, you know, what size barrels you use, what proof you distill out, what, you know, what it's going into the barrel at and all this kind of stuff and you get a rating, instead of all these all this ambiguous marketing jargon, words like small crap, you know, like, well, you know, small batch and singing, all this stuff. It's like, instead of all these words that mean nothing, you're giving customers technical data that they can use to make their own judgments as they, as they learn more about this thing. Cause that's, and that's what's pushing this boom in spirits is this foodie thing. People want to know where their food comes from and they want to know what goes into it and all this technical stuff. Take wine. You can't get wine, producers to shut up about like where their right. grapes grew right. and the minerality, what mm -hmm. side of the hill it was on and all this kind of stuff. Um, and whiskey people still kind of gravitate a little bit towards this. Hey, here's a story. It's not even real. It's about a gangster and just like buy it, you know? <laughs> so I think that needs to, you know, that would, I'd love to say that. And examples, you know, Westland out of Seattle, I, I've talked to these companies and they can't put this kind of stuff on their labels because it would just clutter the labels, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you, Westland is a, I think they set a pretty high bar. If you go to their website, um, it's like they give they give this stuff like fermentation time. You, you look around for it. They have all this stuff. They want to engage with people about like, hey, this is how we make it. Like this is you know we're we're all geeks, and I think that's awesome. Like that's that to me is like this kind of this kind of idea. You know, sometimes the companies don't always have all the information all all the, all the geeks want. Um, you know, for, for various reasons. But that is what I would kind of like to see is this transparency um, and people can make their, their judgments off that. That would be cool. Yeah, in the whiskey world, we, um, you know, Scotland, this is especially um, obvious. Every distillery has its own story that is unique. They're like, oh, we, you know, we slow cook our mash. We do this. We get only local peat. We get grains from here. Um, but like they only have that one story because they're like, we need to find a way to, to identify ourselves uniquely from everybody else. Um, in the U.S., it's more like, hey, there was a random guy by this name that happened to few people thought he might have made the first bourbon. We don't know, but <laughs> right. we'll put his name on the bottle. Done. Um, George Dickel, I, I wrote an article about that this a while ago, but George Dickel is a great bottle of whiskey because it looks fantastic. Like, they're number 12, and I'm like, this was designed by marketers. It's absolutely brilliant. It has, like, number 12 instead of an 8 statement. It has sour mash. It has all these, like, terms that mean absolutely nothing. I mean, it's not that they don't mean nothing, but they're like, most bourbons are sour mashes. Let's go on to something else, right? Yeah, like, what, 99.9? Um, yeah, it's a, yeah. Yeah, and so it's one of those, like, you're saying a lot, but, like, and it works really well. It looks good, but it, it, you're not saying anything unique about the whiskey. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the in Scotland, the eight statements are a problem because they want those eight statements. And they could be very honest and be like, well, you know, you know, so many barrels were 12 years old and so many barrels were 14 and 15. They could, but they don't. They don't. They, they rarely ever do that. Well, and that's the thing. Um, so I, you know, all, all those geeks, you know, I understand older is not better. And so the companies are saying this, well, we age to taste. And it's like, and you totally get it on one hand, you know, when they, when they drop an age statement, I'm like, well, I can't really justify taking technical data that you once gave to a consumer away. What I would like to see is put a lower, you know, put the lower number on there and then explain why, you know, it's not better, but don't take something away that will allow you to really change a product drastically over time. And I will be none the wiser. 
um, you know, when you taste some of these old dusties and you do taste how they've evolved and changed over the years, you know, that's a, that's a great, great lesson. Um, you know, I, my collecting is a little weird, but one of the things I always try to pick up, I don't collect heavily because I try not to fetishize and, and I criticize bunkers a little bit in the book. So I actually totally drank mine down and gave it away and I, uh, it's a philosophical thing, but I do try to keep my hands on once a label drops an age statement, I try to pick those up. And I just have in my head, you know, five, ten years down the line, I'm, I'm going to do a test. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah, I don't like that taking away information. It's like, no, just like educate the consumer why older isn't better. That would be cool. And I get it from their perspective, right? It's like, oh, come on. Like, the average consumer isn't that knowledgeable or that, you know, that into it. They've got lives, right? They're doing other things. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, raising their families and they've got other hobbies. Like, they're not really into this. And I get that. Um, I had a great conversation once with uh, Amir Pei, who does the James Pepper brand, and he gets it from MGPI, and he's totally open about it. And I remember drinking that bourbon. And he's got a he's got a bourbon, he's got a rye, but it's it's fantastic stuff, right? MGPI stuff. It's actually it's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I hate it when you see them lambasted for being a factory, you know. And it's like, well, yeah. factories make whiskey, right? <laughs> it's an industrial product. Factory. Yeah, and he's got. And it's like this very sophisticated. It's like really, it's good stuff. And he once was toying with the idea of a label that would show customers where it came from in the rack house, you know, because he picks picks his barrels and everything. And I, you know, somebody once called me as they were doing a documentary about the craft movement and spirits. And I think a lot of, they're trying to show that like, well, there's producers that just buy it from a big company and then there's producers that make it themselves. And I was like, look, some of these sourcers, uh, these NDPs are very open and they have a great product and, you know, they're reviving the legacies and the names of brands that, you know, are important for the history of whiskey. It doesn't taste exactly the same way as it used to. Um through this method that has existed in this industry for over a hundred years, you know, that's been a common thing since the 1800s. Um, so I, and I, I advised them, I was like, interview them too about honesty and transparency. Cause sometimes they get just as much credit as someone who's doing grain to glass, I think, because they are, um, just as transparent. I go, and that's what I'm starting to base my own judgments about. It's like, you know, yeah, if you're grain to glass, but you don't make a good product and you're not transparent, you know, you've kind of lost, points with me if you're an NDP and your product is really good and you're very transparent you've gained points with me if you're big and you're transparent you've gained points and if you're big and you're not you've lost you know so that's that's kind of how I I judge it more and more yeah I was actually just thinking about this because the sirens went by um my apartment and I was like it's funny I haven't heard any sirens go by Reed and you're in New York but that would which brought me to New York and I was there a couple weeks ago and I went to a liquor store and was completely floored by the price of bourbon oh. in Manhattan. It was <laughs> yeah. like my mouth was like gaping open. I couldn't believe what they were asking. Like there was a bottle of the Taylor cured oak that they were asking a thousand dollars for. And... Crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so Tell me like about a, it. Is this like a thing for you that you struggle with every day? So you kind of learn when you live in New York where to go, right? Right. Um, some liquors, you know, some neighborhoods are automatically going to be, the, you know, a lot more. And it's funny, um, some stores, you just go around the block and you'll see the same bottle of something for, you know, a third of the price. You know, in those kind of cases, yeah. you're talking about the cured oak, which I, I like, but I wasn't even a huge fan of it. Um, too, too much wood um, for me. Um, oh, I love the cured oak. Loved it. But that's the thing, <laughs> and that's, in the, that's one of those things I was talking about. Um, you know, subjectivity before. And like, that's purely in the realm of like, oh yeah, you know, like I can see why someone would love it. Um, And I think I would actually love it maybe in a different setting. It was a really hot day and it was like sweltering out and I tried it neat and I remember (laughs) time and place, right? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Good product though, yeah. But so Bullet um, in New York, I've noticed it's like, I think it's about 45 bucks a bottle. And then I'm, I'm from Indianapolis and I was there last weekend um, visiting family and I think it was 23, which is kind of what I'm typically more, you know. and then a friend of mine was like, you know, Bullet in the state run shops in Maryland, he recently found it on some cut rate deal because the state run shops will do that. He said it was like 15 and I was like, whoa, yeah. And so in New York, you, you do have to wow. put up with some higher prices, but 
there's a couple of stories you know, that I found that are actually very reasonable and sometimes they have deals and so you just kind of have to but one thing I've done though you know since I get a little critical in the book of bunkering and things like that because I'm like it's not really good for us geeks right to have right and I've talked to a couple of liquor store owners and like you know this new paradigm some guy walks in and he buys a whole case as soon as the internet starts blogging about something and I go there isn't a shortage there's just this ocean of whiskey in the closets and basements of a bunch of whiskey geeks and it's just sitting there right and they can never drink through their bunkers and I go you know we've taken it off the market and it's just sitting around and and I you know I was like this isn't good for the you know, this isn't good for you know we're hoarding it you know it's and it's a it's a gold rush mentality it's a bubble mentality and that's what's creating some of the problems that you see a lot of the geeks gripe about and so I found that it was starting to get stressful to always keep up on finding the new new thing and having like a huge you know closet full of it and I it was very liberating in the way that it's sometimes I think liberating to, you know, clean out your closet and get rid of your, you know, things and just kind of clean house a little bit. I started taking it to parties, you know, instead of, you know, taking a bottle of wine. And I started taking it to, you know, just drinking it down. I didn't buy stuff for a really long time. And I was just like, you know, there's so much really good stuff that is readily available. If I can't get that new, new thing, and granted, I, I just wrote a book on this stuff. So I, I, I find myself in situations where I'm offered, like, you know, something awesome. So... I get lucky that way, but I was like, you know, I'm I'm not gonna like work too hard to find certain rare releases and things like that. And I've actually kind of enjoyed it. Um, you know, Steve Urian his blog, that whole stop fetishizing whiskey thing. I, I started doing that like a year, a year and a half, a while back. And I think people are sometimes surprised when they look at my liquor cabinet. I've got some you know weird esoteric stuff way back in another closet, but they look at it and it's like. It's not anything too crazy, <laughs> you know? No, that's great. <laughs> and I was like, and that's the ideal that I thought was what's what attracted me to American whiskey in the first place. I had read Chuck Cowder's book, and I've had an email conversation going with him for a number of years, you know, and looking at it as that humble blue-collar thing you know, that, that it kind of always started out as not an expensive thing, great value. That's like this ideal. So I always try to keep that as an ideal person. Like, I don't want to get into the premiumization games too much or go and when I do try some of that really rare old stuff yeah some of it's awesome yeah it's exquisite it's great but you know trying not to take it too seriously has been very healthy too you're talking about blogs before and you, know, you go out on social media and cup there's you know you, you see people I love it when you see a new whiskey geek you know kind of budding into whiskey dumb and so serious right they've got the conviction of a new so convert serious. Right, yeah. the conviction of a newly converted like you know person on a spiritual journey, and they go on the crusades, and it's like whoa, you know, like dial it back, <laughs> and and you will enjoy it a lot more. You know, you you can really enjoy it. You you don't want to lose your love. You don't want it to become an obsession and then lose your love. Yeah, and I think like Mark and I are also like I know both of us with our collections. The whole thing is. A, the guy at the, the liquor store the, in, in Manhattan that was so crazy expensive was like, oh, you need to start buying Eagle Rare and don't open it, just store it. And I was like, I, I, I can't not open a bottle. Like, I, I can't, I can't not. Like, I, I'm That's... not going to, I can't. I have to, I have to open it. I get it. I'm so excited. I don't care what it is. Like, the day that I got this, um, so here in Ontario, we did this raffle sort of thing for um, the, the Pappy Van Winkle release. Like, we only got a couple cases of the 15 and I I was lucky enough to get one and I came home and I opened it right away <laughs> like I wasn't gonna stash it enjoy it it's to be it's it's to be enjoyed and when sure. it runs out and, and that's not to, you know like certain bottles that have uh, you know a, a positive memory associated with them so you want to hold on to it for a little Drink bit or whatever. <laughs> but yeah but there's something too about killing a bottle that I find great when you have got a great bottle and you have yeah. a couple friends over and you're like look this is kind of what that thing was like that I went to last night with, um, there's a blogger, Josh Feldman, he does the Cooper, it's a great blog, the Cooper Tot, and he's got mm -hmm. these, and he'll do that, it's like, I mean, he's opening this stuff up, and it's like, it's to be enjoyed, and if, you know, once you pour out the bottle, it's like, alright, you know, that was great, and, you know, it's kind <laughs> of, it's, you know, it's, it's to be enjoyed, people make it, not to hide it in a closet, they make it to drink. <laughs> 
it doesn't want to live in your closet. It's like no. It's like it's like locking your kids in the dungeon, right? It's like that's not cool. Like you take take it out and let it play. <laughs> Well, we, we didn't we didn't talk about what whiskey you're drinking because you're you're not drinking whiskey. You're you're working later on today. Yeah, right. right. Um, but tell us uh, tell us of your favorite whiskey because the, the tasting you talked about last night sounded pretty cool. So tell us uh, like about the favorite whiskey you had last night. Oh, you know, one of the things. So a really cool thing is we had the old Hermitage, uh, a, a rye made by the old Hermitage. I think it's pre pro, um, and we compared it to the Thomas Handy which was made in 2014. Very, yeah, it's actually got a similar uh, mash bill and everything. And that was a really fun comparison because the old Hermitage, it was really funky and funky in a good way, right? It, it, dill pickles came up off of it. Um, it had this very rye, it was very like briny, um, like vinegar, I got this like almost, muck, stuff you just don't really get, you know, in whiskey anymore. And that is a point on the book. I talk about this, history of this industry and of this spirit and of this nation is one of consolidation. You know, you went from thousands of producers, which actually wasn't ideal, um, you know, 200 years ago, to today where most of it's made by eight companies, 13 plants, and they make a good product. They have a winning formula, but along the way, a lot of things were kind of rubbed out of, you know, of the same. The cooperages also consolidated, so you have a lot of things that have been lost from whiskey from that perspective, um, you know, different kinds of wood and, you know, how it was aged and seasoned, the, the wood. Um, so, you know, I looked at that and I was like, well, that's kind of a little metaphor. You know, that's a, a parallel history of the U.S. where you have today, you can drive across the country on a road trip and you can go to the same three chain restaurants and you have Clear Channel, which owns like 800 radio stations playing, you know, the send the same top 10 pop songs that their central planning committee has chosen. And you might like those pop songs, but you've lost all this, you know, this stuff. And today's craft, I think what movement, why it has so much potential is that it can re-inject some of that back in, you know, especially once they get to their full force and they're, um, you know, really, um, you know, aging a little longer and, and stepping up more. It's, it's going to be great. Um, and that's what I see. That's the most, that's the greatest thing about the craft movement for me. Um, but when you taste some of that old stuff and you realize some of the things that have been lost, even though the companies today are making, you know, a good product, um, you know, that was a reminder, you know, tasting through that, like that, that funky old Hermitage, uh, that I had last night from the old Hermitage distillery, um, you know, was a, was it, was it, was a, was a, was a great reminder. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of cool. And it's not necessarily better. I mean, if you could buy that product today and it was regularly available, I mean, as far as the balance and things like that go, it was, you know, I'd say that if you're going to do it on a point scale, I'm not a big fan of these point scales, but yeah, the, the new modern Thomas Handy was very different, but it was just as like good. It was just as enjoyable. Um, so I don't want to bemoan the loss of some of these old brands. I certainly don't ever call them better because I've had some dusties that are nasty, right? Like we, <laughs> right, right. we, we romanticize it. Yeah, but you're like, there's a reason they went out of business. Um, <laughs> you know, and so, and that was a theme too because I always use whiskey in the book you know, kind of as a lens to explore American history and culture. And that was the other thing. It's like we nostalgize this past um, in a way that didn't necessarily exist. You know, it's kind of what Reagan did in the 80s to the 50s, right? He made it into this decade that never actually existed and sold it to people, you know, as this time of, you know, greatness and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes, you know, you see people when they fetishize these parts doing that to the past. And I was like, there were some good things that were lost, but we can get them back and it can be, I think, better than it ever was. But just as long as we acknowledge what makes great whiskey, like the technical aspects, and that's where craft, I think, has its place, is reintroducing some of that stuff that the other companies, for whatever reason, just kind of forgot about or left off to the side or, you know, as they batched their processes and things like that, just kind of left by the wayside. Um, it could be better than ever. You know, we shouldn't, all, you know, just like the way the country can be, right? We don't have to yeah. obsess about this stuff um, in that way where we turn it into something it never was and get all, you know, rose, rose colored glasses. So yeah. that's what I always think about when I taste through some of that old stuff. Yeah, I think that's what I got, got from your book, uh, especially it's, it's this, uh, the, the, the Puritan nature of American history is like, let's, let's 
ignore all the and that's just true with every country let's ignore the stuff that uh we didn't let you know we want to make it seem like so there's prohibition and uh you know so many whiskey you know the same people that were making really really interesting whiskey at the time were closed down uh rules and regulations were there in place because the industry had such an ugly side of it um to to like the 50s and 60s where really you started getting more and more quality product and today where now it's uh, it seems like infinite. I like I like the craft movement. I like um, Irish whiskey. I'm I'm hoping brings a new character to the whiskey world. Yes, because uh, mm-hmm. there's so many distilleries coming up there, and I'm I'm really hoping they go more the craft, you know, unique flavor profile versus the hey, let's just make it taste like you know Jameson because that's what people expect in Irish whiskey. I'm, you know, it's hard to say, right? There's like what 16 distilleries opening in the next few years. Yeah. Um. So who knows where they're gonna go? But uh. But I'm really hoping for that. Um. And yeah, I feel like uh, and the craft movement is the same way. You're you're not going to make a perfect whiskey your first time, your first three years, your first five years. Um, it is going to take some time. Yeah. Definitely. No, I, this, yeah. this conversation has left me very hopeful. Actually, hmm. it's got it's had a great tone. Like <laughs> it feels like things are getting. You you see so many articles online about you know the you know the shortage and this and, and there's this tone of of sort of like doomsday this, right yeah like what's happening to the whiskey world there's and, a comet headed towards earth and so right and so <laughs> this 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 has actually given me a lot of of excitement about what's happening and what's going on and and i don't think i've i've gotten that for for a long time because there's just so much other stuff that's that's coming up and and so this is great i feel so happy right now <laughs> we, we've been there. oh yeah I, we're, we're gonna have to have read back on because i feel like we're, we've just oh, we, we've probably we've just touched upon a few surface. several conversations yeah. blast. Oh, total total blast yeah yeah you're, we've been here before too like after prohibition all these shortages and you had all these companies but back then like having they recognize okay we'll have our bridge brand right bourbon falls it's aged for just two years um you know recognizing that like this is ultimately what people know what they're going to want you know we're going to make a good product they're thinking long term we've been there before where we've had these kind of crunches you know because it mm-hmm. because of the nature of the, the the industry it takes so long to make this product um, and it's hard to forecast what demand's going to be. So you're going to have these gluts and these, so, and these uh, shortages. But it's kind of like, I mean, this will eventually subside, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, you know. So I, I was talking to Lou Bryson, and we were talking about the good old days. And he was like, you know, back in the 90s, it was just like, you walk into a liquor store, and some of the stuff you could buy and the price you could buy it at, he was like, man, I mean, it was like, mind-blowing right to think about <laughs> today and I was like oh, I, I even remember it you know I remember that you know I started around 2000 really getting into whiskey and it was like man yeah it, it's it was a whole other world but it, it'll return you know like and in the meantime there's plenty of like pretty inexpensive stuff that's it's 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 good it's enjoyable it's not you know don't as I say don't it's just whiskey right don't take it yeah. too seriously you know someone told me the other day another writer he was like yeah you know there's that canon of I would love if this happened, but that canon of sort of drinks books, um, you know, that you sort of have like, you know, that everyone kind of knows. And he was like, you know, there's stories like the bartenders love those stories. That's kind of the goal of the book is that a little more of that, um, you know, it's not always getting into geeky stuff, which bothered me a little bit. I was like, oh, I would like to in- engage geeks. You saw a little bit of that coverage early on where like, is that one NPR story? And it was sort of like, oh, the smoke in the mirrors. I was like, oh, no. It made it look like I was condemning this industry. And I was like, <laughs> that article did great for me as far as getting eyeballs, you know? Like, you're yeah. like, oh, so yeah. you're never going to turn it down. But yeah, you notice some of the geeks are like, well, who is this guy? You know? And I was like, oh, yeah. No. I told that to somebody and someone was like, oh, screw them, whatever. And I was kind of like, no, you know, you want, you want the acknowledgement, you know, because you have, you're in their camp. But, um, so yeah. But, yeah, I, I, Twitter is like a funny thing. I've like pulled. I've me and Mark have sort of like talked about this offline a little bit. It gets a little intense sometimes. So you just sort of have yeah. to be like, some people are just like they're like a dog with a bone. Like it's just never gonna go away, and you're just you're never gonna win. So, yeah. Well, Reed, thank you for much for coming thank on. Uh, very much appreciate your talk. Um, your book, The Bourbon Empire, is really fantastic. And what I love about this book too is it's. Um, 
it's not it's not going to be your traditional bourbon book it's not your traditional book of like hey here's bourbon to drink um like the one that i wrote uh, this is very much like a book about history american history and a uh, very amazing look at the way the industry has moved and just um i learned a ton of stuff which is always makes me happy no no thanks that's i love i love hearing that you know I love hearing what people liked about it. I also like, I'd like people to tell me too what they disagree with and what they might not like as because there's that stuff in there too. It's kind of, you know, I'm sure some people will have issue with maybe a couple things, but I like to hear that stuff too. But no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, well next time we have you on, we'll, we'll make a hashtag and we'll have people uh, write us in everything they disagreed about your book and that we'll, we'll go through them one at a time. That would actually be, that could actually be a lot of fun, you know, because like, you're like, because you've probably thought about like sometimes you know you're talking about how the internet gets it loses its civility sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of people, you know, they'll look at an article or something written by someone and they'll say, Well, this guy didn't talk about this, implying that you didn't even know enough to bring it up and you're like, No, I totally knew about that. I didn't even think it was important enough to even mention. You know, or like it was <laughs> or just good writing, it would have been losing the forest for the trees or, you know, whatever. Or maybe it's just that posturing thing whiskey geeks sometimes do to like prove that they know more than the next guy or whatever. Yeah. And I was oh. like, I was kind of, I was kind of like, <laughs> I would actually love to do that because you could kind of address these things. Because if I took a very strong opinion on it in the book, I probably do see it both ways. You know, right, like you're right. like I probably see it both. And there's probably a backstory that would explain a lot of things. And well, being know. a writer is tough because you. It's not only your job to like entertain and 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 you know, depending on the type of book, it's uh, to educate or or what have you. It's also your job to make. Um, everything fit together in an interesting way. So sometimes you're like, I sh should include this, but it's going to be a page and a half and somebody's going to forget about what they read three pages ago because now I'm going to lose the audience. And so you do have yeah. to, being a writer is a very much an interesting creative process where editing is a big deal and cutting out things is important. I love um, yeah, I, I've gotten the same complaints. I'm like, ah, oh, you didn't include this. I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, I've left 90% 90, 90 of it on the cutting room floor because you're like, I talked to my editors about that. We talked about pretty famous books, you know, like big books that have done really well. And they gave me some backgrounds and some writers who I kind of adore. And they were like, that book, that came, that's like 300 pages, It's it was 800 when it came in here. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, but these, and these are like, you know, writers that I put on a pedestal sometimes. And they're like, you know, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. But it's like, for someone who's not always a geek you know it's kind of like they don't need all that stuff and you'll probably you'll lose the important stuff if you if you blow them over with like too much so yeah, yeah.